this book, it goes back before 2015, even though that's really the first chapters of the book. It's 2015. It spans through to last year. It covers everything from rise and fall of Corbyn, the Brexit crisis, which is mentioned quite a bit, but also the kind of post-Brexit period that we've been, been in for a couple of years now. And why this subject or why this focus is really uh, really crucial to me, I suppose you could, you could look into my own background for this because when you think about Brexit and the state of the country, the some of the major leave hotspots, I'm, one of them was Bolsover, that's where my family's from, and yet I lived in Harrogate for 10 years in Lincoln, which is again one of the top remain areas in the country, so I have a very interesting kind of dual experience of moving between those areas and talking to people who live in very different communities. On one hand, Harringay is part of the, the most diverse borough in London, which is saying something. 70, over 70% remain. Then you go back to Bolsover, it's probably the most, it's one of the more homogenous places in the country for sure. Probably 95% white, if not more. And it's over 75% in favour of Brexit. But I'd also stress that it isn't just a Brexit book. I'd like to think of it more as a kind of guide to how we got here and hopefully what we can do about the present state of affairs. That's why it looks so much at the internal politics of Labour. One of my favourite chapters was on the Olympic Park and the kind of the strange legacy of the 2012 Olympics and the way in which kind of liberal Remainers have had this mythology about it. Um, there's, there's quite a gap between what they think it was, because of course it's really about where we are now and their nostalgia. It's really about a source of pain. <laughs> so the book is a, a mixture of, as Joel said, there's some elements which are almost like a diary, but there's also elements of psychogeography, exploring different spaces from a cultural and political perspective. There's an awful lot of history in terms of political uh, developments and there are interviews in it as well. I've interviewed such figures as the founder of UKIP, who is not Nigel Farage, <laughs> but someone who hates Nigel Farage, which is very interesting. Um, Alan Skett, right? Alan Skett, yeah, who's a, a specialist in German history. He <laughs> speaks German and French um, and lives in Islington and is Scottish. <laughs> he, and he's a liberal. He's the last thing you would expect. This is the last person you would expect to have founded UKIP, and yet he did. And when we first spoke on the phone, I asked him about Nigel Farage, and he immediately said, oh, he's a racist and a drunk. Uh, <laughs> and I said, oh, really? Uh, <laughs> and we, yeah, we, we organised an interview after that. Um, I went over to his apartment and he made me sit in the spot where Boris Johnson had once sat oh. and interviewed him, which was very strange. Probably a remark on the fact that we're both blondes. Um, Hopefully yeah. the similarity ends there. <laughs> I also interviewed members of the Brexit party, including people who became MEPs. So the book is very much about trying to engage with different factions in the political spectrum, especially around Brexit. To some extent, in the Labour Party, it's more from the perspective of a certain faction, and I think that's fair given the state of our press. I was definitely pro-Corbyn. I was a part of 
cohort we've been with the Labour Party for many years and are now politically homeless, as many other people are. A big kind of message of the book is that there is still kind of hope, just might not be from within Parliament, certainly not for the next few years, I think. Interesting, yeah. yeah. Um, well, maybe I'll just kind of touch on a few areas and, and ask a few questions uh, of Josh to, to let him elaborate a little bit more. And then we will have a session where I'll invite questions from, from the audience and, and have a, a hopefully a, a, you know, a different kind of debate to the things that you're, you're particularly interested in. Um, we did actually put out a, it's a handout of some key quotes from the book, so you get a flavour of, of some of his, his, his writing and some of his, what I think are very kind of perceptive, perspicacious statements, which were usually written months before anybody else was going, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I think, I think you're right. Um, but, but there are a few things that really struck me about the book. Uh, I'm also from the north of England, northeast of England, the twin town with Bolsover actually, Grimsby, so as I've mentioned. Um, so I, I, I really kind of related to the section where you were writing about people in your hometown, family, and, and using your kind of discussion with family members to, to help people up, you know, down south <laughs> to perhaps understand a little bit more about those deindustrialized areas and, and the impact that it, it, it's had uh, on community. But I also felt that you, you dig a bit deeper in terms of the so-called Red Wall, which seems to have, have confused uh, an awful lot of people about, you know, what is the Red Wall, um, what, what's happening now, you know, is, is Starmer kind of so obsessed with winning back the Red Wall that that's, you know, driving almost everything. So I'd, I'd be interested to hear a few of your thoughts, and, you know, for, for an audience that is down south and in, in London about the Red Wall and, and what was it, what is it? The term itself is clearly just a, another American import. We're very much guilty of ripping off the worst aspects of American culture and just transplanting them into our <laughs> political and cultural space and hoping for the best. But it, do, it does refer to a real thing. There are these constituencies across the Midlands and the north of England which have always been Labour, or at least seemingly always. Um, but the mistake is to think that that meant that there was no right-wing vote in those communities ever. The truth is there was always a kind of a nationalist or militarist stroke nationalist kind of vote in those communities. It's kind of, it's well personified by people like Lee Anderson, who's now a Tory. Again, I'm sure he fought and said the exact same things when he was a Labour MP as he does now. Um, he was just less prominent. Uh, well, a Labour politician wasn't an MP, to be fair. And yeah, I would argue that deindustrialization was a key part of breaking the kind of Labour vote in those communities. It wasn't that all those Labour voters turned into Tories overnight, so that many of them stayed home. Some of them defected to other parties, some of them, yeah, went Tory as well. But there was already a right-wing vote there that had been there for decades. Yes, I think that the deindustrialization of those communities is, cr is a crucial factor in all of this because it correlates <clears throat> with the integration into the EU. So in the minds of so many of those people, they saw their country join the European community and then their community is destroyed over 40 years. That's not actual causality, but in the minds of a lot of people, they connected them, and it wasn't unreasonable for many of them because Thatcher was a militant European for many years. That's now buried because there's a Eurosceptic mythology around Thatcher, but um, for most of her political career, 
Uh, she was very much pro-integration. That's fascinating, particularly given how continental Europe also underwent at the same time a period of deindustrialization, parallel to what took place in the United Kingdom, and particularly the big automotive companies like Renault moving its manufacturing to Turkey and to Hungary and, and Fiat, Serbia. Isn't there any interest in questioning right-wing narratives in these quarters? Why were people so gullible? Was it just because they were angry and it was a, a, the populist right gave them convenient explanations that they didn't have to work hard to make sense of? I don't think it's gullibility for the most part. I think that for the, for the people who were bought over, as we might phrase it, because they were already emotionally invested in certain symbols and certain narratives. And so much of politics is actually emotional. We don't like to think of it like that, but it actually is. So they were, they were willing to buy into certain things. Um, it didn't mean that they literally believed the uh, slogan on the side of the bus that we've all mocked, you know. They probably didn't care if it was true or not in some ways. The mistake is to think that it is actually about the facts and that you can quote-unquote quote, uh, debunk people's beliefs in this way. You really can't because it's about values. And why people invest in those values, you know, there's a history there, I think. But in terms of challenging, challenging the right in these communities, that's definitely happening all the time. But the, the forms of it have been dwindling for a long time. Because where did it come from traditionally? It would have been the trade union movement right. in its own way, even though the trade union movement has got had its own problems, right? But um, they had community centres in these areas. You, in Bolzova, you had the miners, clubs, basically little pubs where people went and hung out and watched sports and things. Those communities... I've lost those centres now. Most of those places have been shut down or replaced with other things that have been bought up. So it's not just the heavy industry disappeared, but the kind of centres and institutions connected to those things disappeared with it. And that's probably where those challenges would have come from historically. You know, the people who would have challenged racism in the 60s and 70s in North Derbyshire would have, would have been trade unionists. And they might have had a very different critique and worldview to uh, anti-racist today. It would have been more along the lines of you have to recognise your interests with the migrant worker as opposed to uh, the boss who's screwing both of you. Right. you know, um, that's, that's gone now. So what do you have? You have a vacuum and once where there were mines, there are now Amazon warehouses. Um, and that's very true in North Derbyshire. And, and yet we've seen a little bit of a revival of the, the unions over the last year, yeah. year and a half, let's say. And that was going to be another one of my questions. So what role for the, for the trade unions? Because indeed there, there was a, definitely a decline. And also some of the unions were, were for leaving the EU, you know, for, yeah. for reasons that I think are fairly well understood. But, but now, are the trade unions, are they going to be able to change things, to influence? You know, they're not really as strong as they used to be. I'm really interested to know your thoughts on that. There's definitely a kind of revival of militancy and, um, and organisation among trade unions right now. Um, that's borne out by the number of strikes we're seeing. And I think membership has increased in certain, certain sectors. Um, and yet we've seen new unions spring up, whether it be in the gig economy, or it's in organisations like ACORN, which I'm a part of. Can you explain ACORN? ACORN is a community union which organises 
on the basis of the interests of residents in a given area. So we, we don't organise in workplaces as much as we organise on estates or in street by street in some cases. So people join up because they have a problem with their landlord, very typically, but it might also be because they have a beef with the trade, with the uh, council for various reasons over, you know, it could be public services like transport, it could be anything. Mm -hmm. And that's a very different form of organising. That's non-traditional trade unionism, where you're organising on the basis of communities as opposed to workplaces. So that's a very good example of a kind of a grassroots or a, a green shoot, so to say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Something to keep an eye on. There's another theme that I think runs through your book, and that is about the so-called establishment, uh, which means different things to different people. But there's this, this strand that runs through, that if I'm reading it correctly, is we're only just now really beginning to see. It's like you know drawing back the curtain of who has the levers of power and you know the entrenched interests and and I admit myself I didn't realize <laughs> how entrenched they were I thought it was a meritocracy and you could you know if you worked hard and you studied and you went to university or you did a trade or whatever you could get on and you could do whatever you wanted to but when you get to that point and you see these the structures and establishment you kind of go well you know this is this is quite entrenched but I think for most part, um, we felt that we could do anything because society was opening up. We had, you know, free trade and, uh, yeah, with Thatcherism and so on. You may or may not have agreed with the policies, but it kind of unleashed, or it seemed like it unleashed uh, opportunity, individual opportunity. But I see you come back time and time again to this kind of, well, actually, don't be nostalgic for that past because actually behind the scenes there wasn't really that much mobility um so i'm curious to know is that the correct interpretation yeah i i definitely focus a lot on a certain form of nostalgia which i think is kind of uh, it, people kind of get lost in these kind of um, mythologies about the past i think especially after a crisis like brexit um or, or even just the crisis that we had in the Labour Party, which is a much more localised crisis. But, um, uh, yeah, for example, when we talk about Thatcherism, it's not just Thatcherism, but um, the whole period post-Thatcher from, say, the early 90s through to 2016, there was a certain section of British society which was kind of in a dream, I think, for a long time. And that was to do with the fact that we had a 16-year boom from the early 90s to the late 2000s, and then we had a major financial crisis, yeah. and then that wasn't addressed, so we staggered on through the Cameron era, and then we ended up with Brexit, and suddenly a whole bunch of people are saying, can't we go back to the way things used to be five, ten years ago when we were a united country and everything was wonderful, and it's very much a fantasy, I think. We were never that united. I think the divisions behind these crises go back decades, if not centuries, it's not a coincidence that if you look at the map of Brexit, the, uh, the divisions, the ge geographic divisions of the UK are very similar to what we had in the English Civil War, with some important caveats. Kent was a very radical place during the English Civil War. It's now a, a hub of Brexit opinion, except for Canterbury, so we'll leave Canterbury out of it. <laughs> but the rest of the country falls into this pattern, and that's going back centuries. Much like if you look at the United States, the electoral map still matches the American Civil War map today. 
with some variation. Trump's big victory in 2016 was that he got Northeast working class and middle class people to vote like white Southerners. And he slightly shifted the map. Um, the reasons for that we can get into this whole can of worms. And I don't think it's always appropriate to kind of connect Brexit and Trump in that way, to be fair, but given that they kind of coincided, it's, it's worth talking about, I think. And I think the other topic that uh, is beginning to be addressed maybe now was the kind of colonialism and the, mm. you know, the, the impact of empire and the decline of empire and the fact that, again, I, I don't know if I speak for other people in this room, but being educated in the UK, I didn't learn anything about British Empire, particularly apart from how you know, great it was for India. But that was about it. And so, again, the, I think we've seen some of the ramifications of that uh, that you mentioned in something you talk about, you know, some of the cities that are, are you know, now very diverse. Yeah. Um, there is a chasm in British society between towns and villages and major cities. And the diversity tends to be in favour of large cities, but also some small cities, to be fair. So the, that is very much connected into the cultural war aspects of Brexit and the kind of new nationalism we've seen. But yeah, you find a lot of <laughs> a lot of uh, Leave voters who seem baffled as to why there are black and brown people in this country and don't seem to connect that with their own nostalgia for the empire. I will also add another point about that: the uh, nostalgia for British imperialism isn't just a Leave phenomenon. A lot of the Remain side, the centrist or right-wing Remain camp, were openly saying, well, we have to be in Europe because we're British and we're great and we have to be there because we're special. You know, they were putting up posters, some of them of Churchill, saying Churchill didn't live up and all this stuff, which is all, again, very revealing for certain politics that was dominant in the Remain camp. And again, I think those of us who voted Remain have to ask ourselves, why why the referendum went the way it did. It wasn't all because of Cambridge Analytica and um, some very good Slogan era.